Hello and welcome back to the Skylight Books podcast. My name is Tyler Austin. I'm a bookseller at Skylight Books here in Los Angeles. And uh, today I'm excited, ecstatic, uh, to be joined by Will Harris, a semi-former AV Club writer with over 200 Random Rolls articles. He's now with Decider, uh, been with Decider, Vanity Fair, Variety, Vulture, many other outlets, not starting with V. And he has a, a big gig coming up that uh, we're all excited to see what he's going to do with. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And you were also the writer of uh, the Airplane Oral History, which is what we're here to talk about today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Will. Absolutely. My pleasure. I got, my, my formal title for the book is Interviewer. Just uh, Interviewer. Yes. Yeah. Interviewer. <laughs> that is, you know. I should have I should have double checked on that because I wasn't sure uh, what exactly. Contractually, I, I do not want to claim to be the the writer of it. <laughs> the right, okay, that's good. <laughs> interviewer and uh, and sort of uh, historian. You know, I would say historian. Let's frame yeah, you or, up. Oral historian is probably not a bad thing. I yeah, think that's fair. I think that's the right. I think that's the right way to go. I like that. Okay, so and it's it's called Surely You Can't Be Serious. Obviously, one of the the famous lines, maybe one of the enduring, most enduring jokes. Of the entire film is the is the is where you get the title from, and so yeah. uh, I always when we start one of these podcasts where I'm speaking to someone who's spent a, a great amount of time writing one book, one <laughs> long book about a subject matter such as airplane. Uh, I like to sort of ask by what, what was your initial relationship with the movie Airplane, and that that obviously endured all the way until now. Um, I literally saw it in the theater during its original run, so 1980. I was 10. Uh, possibly should not have seen it that young, but uh, I mean, it was it was PG, and my parents trusted me enough at 10 that they sent me off in the theater to go watch it, because uh, those were the days where you could just send your kid off to the theater to watch a movie at 10. Uh, yeah, but I I loved it. It definitely shaped and or warped my uh, comedic sensibilities, uh, and I was. Uh, in the Zucker Abram Zucker camp for life from that moment on. Do you remember? So at ten, I feel like that is maybe a little too young, but also probably the perfect time to see Airplane. Uh, yeah, def definitely my first pair of bare breasts on the silver screen. Yes, that is. <laughs> yeah, uh, I feel like for me that would probably fall in the similar camp in terms of seeing it on HBO <laughs> on a yep. Sunday uh, afternoon. I mean, what's this sure. airplane movie about? My dad being like, it's really funny and maybe not remembering everything that's in the movie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, what What was your, did you just initially, immediately take to it? Were there, were there certain jokes that you, what, what were the jokes you came out of that movie just, just absolutely quoting or, or loving? And, and Yeah, yeah I, I don't remember the specific jokes at the time. It, it just, I remember that I found it absolutely hysterical and just the, I guess the, the, the hilarity and the seriousness. I do remember that aspect of it. Yes. And uh, that is, they, yeah. They, they and, hit and on carried that. on to uh, when they did the, the short-lived TV series Police, Squ Police Squad, which evolved into the Naked Gun film franchise. I, I was one of the five people who watched it when it was originally on the air. And I still remember calling my friend Chris Johnson after every episode, and we would just trade our favorite jokes that's that's the beauty of that that is exactly it and and you hit it there too with the, with the tone which is something they talk about as being so important obviously in the book of like it, it the joke is that no one's playing anything as a joke it's everything is just so stock serious that exactly. they that that's where the comedy comes from which is such a specific sensibility and i feel like you do a great job of getting into the book with with the guys about what exactly that is and uh well so when you 
So just to, to go back a little bit, uh, sure. you did an oral history of uh, this for the AV club back in 2015. Is that when you sort of first got into contact with those guys and, and maybe, yeah. Yeah, they yeah, that, that was started. A, yeah, that's how it started. I uh, was contacted by uh, Sean O'Neill, who was one of my editors at the AV club at the time. And he said, would you be interested in doing this? They're doing a screening of airplane. I think it was in Nashville, somewhere in Tennessee. And uh, we we were pitched the idea of doing a piece on it. And I thought it would be a great way to, to kick off an oral history. So, uh, I, I reached out to, I think, I think it was David and Jerry were going to be there. And then I also reached out to Jim. So I managed to get all three of them at the time and as many of the actors as I possibly could. Uh, and then it was huge success for the AV club, tons of, uh, traffic and tweets and retweets, etc. cetera. Uh, it was about, Let's see, that was May 2015. And then in December 2016, that's when I got an email from David Zucker with the subject line, uh, freelance work. And it basically, it just said, uh, I might have something for you. Uh, give me a call. And so when I called him, uh, and I tell the story all the time, but this is literally how it went down. He said, you know, we had, had talked about the possibility of doing a book and nobody was getting off their asses to do it. And then we were just sitting around watching a Packers game and, uh, I don't remember which of us actually suggested it, but someone said, well, what about that uh, guy who did the thing for the AV club? That didn't suck. Uh, so they reached out to me and obviously it, it was a process because uh, that was December 2016. And here we are in 2023 um, and the pandemic didn't exactly help things either. But uh, eventually we got it done. The whole thing was like done on spec, basically uh, what spec in terms of they were paying me as opposed to a publisher. Like I was right, basically right. on retainer for them working on it to put it together as best we could. Uh, and then it was set up so that once they actually got whatever advance or whatever, I get a portion of that as well. We've got all that worked out, but uh, it was a long, but wonderful experience. <laughs> I could imagine. I, I think uh, what I love so much about going through it and, and you know, it's a, such a quick read because there it's, it's so, funny and obviously in a way that oral histories can be conversational it's very conversational but i yeah. so I, i've never I, the way it reads is that uh zaz uh, as uh zucker abrams and zucker are, are known uh shortened uh yeah. it, they were are there together right they're in the same room as you're interviewing them well we we're all on the same call they were in, same in their call. respective okay. homes yeah but yeah we did probably i'm sure over two dozen uh, Zoom calls, and almost all of them, it was all three of them together. I, I've got occasional recordings on my computer that will say just Jim or just David and Jerry or whatever, just depending on what the availability was. But whenever possible, uh, it was all three of us, and that tended to be way more the majority than not. Because it's just it's so fun because there you can see them all remembering and building off of each other and riffing jokes, and it's like you're like, oh, this is must have what it must have been like to 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 be there for the writing of Airplane. Uh, Absolutely, and uh, I've I've said that I got the definitive uh, director's commentary of the movie because I literally we David put the movie on uh, while we were on Zoom and we watched it all four of us and he would just pause it so they could tell anecdotes about whatever scene was happening at any given moment. Oh, that's incredible! So that's yeah. um, if you have that file recorded, you could just if it were to fall in my <laughs> inbox, I wouldn't fight you on. That. I understand. Uh, <laughs> uh that's incredible so what was it like was it difficult because there are three guys who and, and we can get into it even in more specific because there are some jokes and bits and these things these guys do that i was just like 
oh my gosh, who, you know, who has the stamina for these types of bits, long running bits that they do? <laughs> how did, how do you, uh, was it difficult to wrangle them or were they all pretty, did they try to stay on topic? Um, for the most part, they've got a, a flow with each other that works, worked really well in terms of the conversations. Um, and it also helped me that their voices are, each of them are distinctive enough that transcribing it was a lot easier than it could have been otherwise. Um, but yeah, they, uh, they're very good about, for the most part, letting each other finish talking before the next one starts to talk. That's always good. That doesn't always happen. I feel like that, that can yeah. always get wrong. But then I guess that's years and years of having built a, a sort of rapport, uh, a comedic rapport specifically. Absolutely. And as far as the construction of the book with those guys, uh, we had the benefit that I, obviously, like I say, I transcribed everything, of course. Um, but then I think probably one of the biggest reasons that they're credited as authors as opposed to me is that even after I transcribed everything, it went back to them and they would remember things they hadn't said during the course of the conversations and they would continue to add more stuff in. So that's great. That makes a lot yeah. of sense for sure that they, and, and, uh, I was going to, one of the things I loved about the book too, and there's more, it's more than just, uh, interviews. There's so many, there's newspaper clippings old advertisements, pages of the script and things. Is that stuff that they just all had saved away in like a, an archive somewhere? Or? David, I, I've gotten the impression, is the official archivist for the, the trio. Um, and when I first started the uh, the project, his uh, assistant sent me over uh, the official, such as it was, official uh, ZAZ scrapbook. It was uh, photocopies of like just a ton of stuff that they had over the course of the years, various flyers and uh, interview clippings and photos from their various collections. And then I had like uh, Dropbox, uh, a ton of pic photos as well that they had. So, I mean, they, David, they, David has, uh, I can't even begin to guess how much stuff he's got that he has saved over the years. It's amazing. I mean, it really is. And it adds just such a, another great dimension to the book, obviously, to be able to, because, you know, I feel like that is one of those things. And if you read an oral history or something and someone references something offhand, like, well, we did this, uh, you know, we did an advertisement for a, for a phone line that was just, you know, 1-800-FART. Yes, uh, fart. It was great. You, <laughs> and you go, okay, uh, yeah, I believe you. I'm sure it was really funny. And then you see the advertisement for it and you go, oh, okay. And then the news story saying how the, it, it tied up the lines too much and they had to shut it down. <laughs> like, I believe you. <laughs> Absolutely. That's so cool. Um, so I like also, so you kind of dealt with that. We did a lot of with them. And then there's a ton of interviews with, uh, I guess you could say people, you know, the, the people that in, that were influenced by airplane, the, the sort of celebrity, the, the now comedy filmmaking uh generation past them that are that are now all working uh so how was it like because I, I think bill Hader is quoted about as much as anybody in the book and in, in adam McKay. yeah it's fun uh as far as the people there's a you can usually tell the people who i interviewed versus the people who they happen to have archival quotes from because i didn't actually get to interview pat oswald for this i didn't get to interview sarah silverman uh i know they are quoted in there i think I didn't interview Molly Shannon, but I know that David is good friends with Molly Shannon, so he may have actually had a little slight conversation with her and got some quotes from that. But yeah, Bill Hader uh, was probably uh, the most uh, agreeable to talk just because uh, he's like, oh, here's my here's my number. Uh, give me a call. We'll talk. And we just chatted for a long time. Just a, a massive fan of, of their work and the film and uh, had a nice conversation with Judd Apatow, even though he was uh, bouncing between projects at the time. 
uh, Jimmy Kimmel was thrilled to get on the phone too, actually. Uh, and who else? Uh, oh, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Uh, they oh, were in yeah. two separate locations actually when I talked to them, but they were both ecstatic to get on the phone to talk about it. That's so interesting. So it, how do you go about sort of, uh, I mean, you could probably, probably like, you know, uh, throw a dart in the dark in, uh, and hit somebody who's an airplane fan, but how do you go about sort of compiling that list and, and uh, deciding who you're going to try to talk to about? The majority of that came from David, who had been approached by these people over the years who had said, I'm a huge airplane fan. So he's yeah. like, these are the people you're going to want to reach out to. And then there were a few others that I tried here and there. That I tried to find out if they were airplane fans, if they were, if they wanted to talk. But it, it was surprising how many people I couldn't get through that direction. It was mostly those people who David had known. And because they had pointedly told him what a fan he what they were, it was easy to get them on the line. That's great. Yeah, and Hater has such is is like clearly such a film nerd and comedy nerd, and and he yeah. just goes so long about it. He, but yeah, he he, I was. I was at every other page. I was like, hey, Bill Hader had something interesting to say about this. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, Adam McKay was someone else I forgot to mention who I had a great conversation with about it, too. Yes, he was also, I felt like, popped in a lot. And I was like, oh, that's always, and which makes so much sense. I mean, you can go right from airplane to something like Anchorman, I feel like. 100%. You know, yeah. Yeah. He was, he made himself very accessible. Though. He was great. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. So I, I love also the book kind of goes further back it, it kind of really begins uh or, or or you know tells the entire story of of this this partnership back to their early roots in wisconsin and uh and you know follows them as they they become you know essentially like the inspiration for for saturday night live and i guess how important was it uh for you and for them to kind of get that whole story the entire sort of the rise of zazz as it were into the into the book it was very, very important for them because it was basically it was it, it was a line that you couldn't get from one to without getting to the other. I mean, they the process of starting in uh, Wisconsin and very much their upbringing was a direct inspiration for so much of the stuff that was in the film as far as just how they grew up and the shows they watched, the films they saw, the comedy they were exposed to. All that stuff was instrumental in helping shaping and shaping slash warping uh, their sensibility. <laughs> Uh, and then just the story of the the evolution of the Kentucky Fried Theater uh, and the fact that it became such a huge success in Wisconsin that they dared to try to take it uh, to California uh, as if there was no comedy already in California. And yet it relatively quickly proved to be a success there as well. That's boy. There was no moment more where I was like, they got like an entire space for six hundred dollars in Los Angeles <laughs> a month. Boy, this was a different time. <laughs> it's funny. I, I, uh, my friend Michael Price, who is uh, works for The Simpsons and uh, co-creator of uh, F for Family, he, he got a copy of the book and was reading and he was like, I can't believe, turns out I've driven past where that theater was like every day for years and had no idea that's where it was. It was gone before we ever got there. Yeah, that was so. So, uh, well, yeah. So they start this theater basically as like, uh, and they started back in, in Madison, Wisconsin as a, uh, it's, it's kind of even, uh, you know, there's almost no equivalent that I can really think of because it's not like a UCB. It's like basically, you know, they build this entire theater out with their bare hands. You know, they're like they had yeah. pretty handy guys uh, just to sort of put on their own shows. And they kind of also uh, this is where I was going to say, like some of the bits, even the things they like tried to do but couldn't do where it's like, you know, they wanted to make the toilet like a pink, uh, like a <laughs> like a, a pinball machine. 
or yes. a light lit up if you peed in, or, or you know, a phone dropped down from the ceiling, or you know, <laughs> that you know, all these kind of crazy things. So just they built this thing to this, their own specifications, and then yeah, and then basically packed it all up and moved it to Los Angeles. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, there's like almost no equivalent for it. I, I feel like no, I mean, the, even. The closest you could possibly come is Second City going on tour, but it's it's just not the same thing. It's not like Second City picked up the entire theater and, and took it to another city. That was just a touring yeah, and, company. That, and then picked and then, up everything and moved it. Right, and then built like a new, uh, like a giant nose uh, that they hung <laughs> above the ticket theater every night, or you know, because they now have a show <laughs> called The Nose Runs, uh, you know, the, the Nose Runs Nightly or, or runs yeah. constantly, which is it's, again just bits and bits and jokes and jokes, and they're and they're just so funny. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it was a fascinating kind of thing, and and yeah, and <laughs> they bring it to Los Angeles, and it becomes this big hit, uh, and then they decide to kind of try to get into the film, and you know, that was. Uh, do they how do they do they still how do they still seem to feel about that because it seems like it was a bit of an arduous process uh as far as the kentucky fried movie yeah i mean they learned a lot and the first first and foremost thing that they learned was that they didn't want to do another movie with someone who uh where they weren't directing uh that was what they learned through landis i mean he was very helpful in fact he was uh invaluable as far as getting their them going and and uh in film, but in the end, there was some disgruntlement. I think about uh, how the final film turned out versus what they wanted and what he wanted, uh, and there were changes done throughout that annoyed them. Even if there were small ones, it's like, well, this is what we wanted, and we didn't want you to change that. So, I mean, that 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 was what they I think learned the most from it. But they also look back at it with a lot of love and uh, laughter too. Still, yeah, you know, I mean, it's something I. I either I'd only seen bits and pieces of it or maybe never watched it in full. But uh, I, uh, as part of reading the book, it, which I love when a book like this is, is always so great because you can go back and rewatch something and kind of engage with it uh, yeah. a, as you're reading about the process behind it. And I, I felt like, you know, I mean, I, I could see where there would be there were some disagreements and you can kind of feel where things diverge from their sort of uh, house style and, and, and their comedy tone. But that movie holds up in a way, or there are jokes and, and sketches in that movie that hold up in ways that I was really very surprised, uh, you know, just how fresh it still felt. Yeah, I definitely would not claim that it holds up as well as Airplane, but there are certain aspects of it that absolutely do hold up and, and very well. Yeah, and uh, so they go from there, so they, they do, wait, they, so they make Kentucky Pride movie, which is, was started as a collection of the sketches that they would do with their theater, mm-hmm. uh, and then... They so they they're in their foots in the door of the movie industry. Oh, also, uh, I quick quickly because also with the theater there was a there's a name of a person in the theater who I was like this feels like the name of a character from a, uh, one of their films that never got used, which is Dick Chudnow. Yes, <laughs> uh, a, a legend though. He, he was one of the founding founding members of the Jackie Fry Theater, and they went on to be responsible for uh, comedy sports. Which I, I was, you know, again, one of those things where I don't you ever read those stories where it's like, and, and these six people all started in the same classroom and each one of them is equally, they all shot off and did their own equally kind of impressive things. So, an amazing career in life, but I just, every time I saw Chuck, uh, Dick Chudnow, I, I giggled. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't have much of a constitution, so... Uh, <laughs> But so, so who he actually, he is one of the people who starts with him back in Wisconsin and he comes out to LA and then, and then leaves at a certain point, they have to replace him. 
there was some yeah. definite like turnover in personnel there. And I feel like that was kind of an important part of them evolving a little bit. It was because uh, his departure led to the, uh, I guess, the addition of Pat Croft, who would later go on to collaborate with David and the guys on, uh, again, the police squad in Naked Gun films. And so we brought in an interesting voice and and kind of an L.A. Uh, well, but he was from what uh, Minnesota, so still kind of hate. I am blanking on where he his origins are from, actually. But whatever the case, he I think he'd been in L.A. LA longer anyway. He'd been in L.A. longer, but also I I feel like he was either Minnesota or something like that. We were kind of adhering to those Midwestern sort of uh, their sensibility, right? Uh, which which was important to them, I think. Uh, so it is, and they've made Kentucky Fried movie, and now they're they're trying to move to you know get their own film made and, and airplane had been like a long a long gestating idea which i'd always kind of heard but how yeah. far just how far back did it go exactly uh before kentucky fried movie i believe if my memory serves it's been it's been a while since i've gone back and heard these stories now yes. uh, but <laughs> but yeah they uh it was one of those where they had a uh one of the early vcrs in the 70s and they would just run it overnight and just record whatever came on the air and use it, you know, like mine it for sketch ideas or whatever. And then one night they managed to catch the movie Zero Hour, which was just a grade B thriller uh, about a a uh, plane that uh, the crew gets sick in mid-flight. And uh, fortunately, there's a former war pilot uh, who happens to be on the on the flight, and uh, they need him to save the day, even though he's scared to death to get behind the the uh, cockpit again. And if any of that sounds familiar, obviously it's because they use so much of it that they actually had to buy the rights to it. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it's insane. I, a lot of people may know about the Zero Hour connection, but until you've actually gone back and watched Zero Hour side by side with Airplane, it is startling how many lines were, were ripped literally straight from that film. Uh, the one that stood out was was the uh, we need someone who can fly a plane and didn't eat fish for dinner. Exactly. That's just I could not believe it when they told me that was the exact line. I had not realized that. Incredible, <laughs> incredible. Uh, but yeah, by virtue of watching that, that's what it inspired it. And uh, obviously, it was still a long process because they needed to try to get the the funding, and they they always knew from the get go that they wanted to go with the whole serious actors. And, and the roles and that was proving almost impossible to to sell to actors because no one had never ever really done anything like that gotten serious people to do comedy by virtue of not being funny yes <laughs> it, <right>. just, <laughs> it, it completely blew the minds of studios who just could not wrap their heads around what they wanted wanted to do and uh they took a while to find the right actors even when the, the actors like robert stack who they wanted from the get-go and uh, I forget the exact phrasing, but basically they went uh, to him and they wanted to know if it was basically a, a backed picture or not. And they didn't know the terminology. And so oh, we don't know what that means. Like that, what it means right now is you're clearly not making this movie. So come back to us later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it, it is an uphill battle. Like, and, and especially because you kind of get into it at a certain point that they were, uh, adamant about making it, try to making it in, in black and white, uh, which I could obviously see being a problem for people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for a long time, they were adamant about that. And then also that it being a, not a jet plane, which is very, very, like it being a prop plane. Yeah. Uh, 
which is uh, hilarious. And eventually they get to a point where someone's going to make it. And then those two things are, are taken off the table. And as much as they fight about it, they decide, okay, we're going to, we'll, we'll make the movie because well, and then simultaneously, they're obviously, they're, they're uh, parodying zero hour incredible so closely. They, they buy the rights, like you said, but then yeah. also the seventies is filled with all these kind of disaster movies, specifically airport series as well. And so it almost allows, like, it opens up a whole new avenue of, of uh, movie for them to, to parody. And uh, w- there were a couple other pieces there where uh, they, were, they were trying to cast the little literal actors from the airport movie to do their scene in their movie and, and had exactly. to back off of that. Yeah. yeah, because Universal was not having it. They were threatening with them with lawsuits. They wanted to get George Kennedy at one point. And they were like, nope, not going to do it. And uh, if you can't remember if it was Helen Reddy, maybe they wanted to get or some one of the uh, nuns from the original movie and airport and they were like nope not it's not gonna happen either <laughs> so i mean just which is good tells you how closely they were trying to you know it's like they, they were so close to the to the bone of what it is they were parroting which is just so is so great well one of the one of the greatest little things that uh, is in the movie that you would only know uh, like even the guys could not remember where they got it from. There's uh, in the early moments where the red uh, zone versus white zone, yeah. uh, where the two voices end up having an argument with each other uh, about uh, the, uh, whether or not to have an abortion. Well, they were like, "Oh yeah, we stole that wholesale from uh, some uh, novel we got," and they could not li- for life remember it. So I transcribed the conversation and went to Google. Yeah, it's from airport. Oh, <laughs> and they they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so they, they managed to literally include airport in airplane. And I don't think anyone even noticed. <laughs> so fun. And, and, and the, the great thing about that as well is so right. So it's the actual conversation. They have the red, red and the white lane announcers going back and forth with that exact conversation from airport. And then eventually yeah. they, they were uh, trying to grab a bunch of people to do those voices. And eventually they just got. The husband and wife duo who did the voices at LAX do exactly, correctly. which is amazing. And so it's such a funny. I mean, it just tells you right from the jump where, but uh, where how funny it's going to be. Uh, so yeah, and then they they continue to get people I, I like uh, Peter Graves who, uh, from uh, either the, the original Mission Impossible series and and obviously uh, Lloyd Bridges, all you know, very serious actors. Yeah, I think Peter Graves is the one who when he was saw when he read the script said this was trash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's his daughter talked him into doing it. Uh, Robert Stack just kind of shrugged and rolled with it. Lloyd Bridges definitely was the one who didn't get it for the longest time until finally Robert Stack just said, don't you get it, Lloyd? They just want us to be us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did the trick, apparently, or at least got him a lot closer than anything else had gotten him. But Leslie Nielsen was definitely the one who, even though he was like, their third or fourth choice uh, for that role. Uh, he was the one who was like the closet comedian who nailed it from the get go. He's uh, he's, I mean, obviously there's a reason why he gets, he does so many comedies afterwards. He's so, so, yeah. so funny. And, and like you say, like classic comedian. He, yeah. I mean, the, his antics on set became sort of the, the stuff of legend, which I feel like took, I, I never, you know, you, you read up, you pick up a book and you go, is there going to be two and a half pages about a fart machine in this? <laughs> that I mean, was always going to be part of the oral history that I did for the AV club was I had an entire section that was just called welcome to the machine. And it talked <laughs> his little fart machine that he had built or his friend, the doctor had built and that he would sell them on the set. 
where it reached a point where he drove the, the, the Zucker's neighbors crazy and they just had to put a, a ban on them and go around and collect them on the set <laughs> so they would not be going off in mid take. Uh, it's so fun. I mean, it's, it's, and, and it's even funnier because it's, I don't even really know how to describe the device, honestly, exactly how, but it's something that kind of fits in the palm of your hand. Yeah. And it was like a, uh, it was like a, a rubber bladder kind of a thing. Hmm. You would like wind it and then it would make the sound. And, uh, I, I I can't I, I I've read Leslie's own specific description of it, uh, and I I'm blanking on the the phrasing now. But whatever the case, basically it was it was the perfect fart machine, and so small you could fit it in your hand. So so small, and like and everyone, I feel like I think it was Julie Haggerty or or someone who had said like, and you know everyone bought one, but really Leslie played it like a maestro. You know he was. Yeah. <laughs> He was the best at it, which is so funny. Yeah, I think Robert Hayes is the one who used the word maestro. I died. Oh, yes. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it's so yeah. good. Uh, he, he, you know, just just a, a you know fit in so perfectly with their kind of uh, the spirit of it. Well, because even going back to the theater, there's a moment. I think uh, you know it, it was interesting as a, as you kind of read the book and 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 you know the theater and the movie and all these things. You know, uh, Jerry, David, and Jim are sort of three very interesting, distinct personalities. Yeah. Um, and and it, there's there was the breakdown of it where it was so Jim after a show would uh, get on his motorcycle and be home in Malibu in like 20 minutes and uh, smoking weed and watching uh, like sports bloopers. Yeah, uh, yep. <laughs> was it was David who was who'd pick someone out in the uh, uh, tried to pick out the prettiest girl in the crowd and try to to talk to her after the show, and then yeah. Jerry would go out and like just glad hand with people until you know you know in the lobby for as long as possible yeah which i think is just it kind of it, it what a perfect like recipe of those three all those kind of uh perfect uh personality traits all coming together collectively <laughs> it, it, it was kind of a, a wonder and also my probably my favorite chapter in the whole thing is about uh stucker steven stucker yes oh my gosh <laughs> who who yes comes in at, at the theater and uh is just like a lightning is like a a, a a runaway train hit by a lightning bolt you know of comedy and yeah, uh yeah that's one thing i'd like to read if, if you don't mind just from oh, straight please, from the book. Please. yeah absolutely yeah Where david said we arranged for him to come to the theater and audition i remember seeing him for the first time from the second floor kitchen window an orange vw beetle drives up and this tall guy gets out wearing two-tone leather hot pants my heart sank jim I was 28 at the time, and I'm sure I had never known an outed gay man in my life. But this guy just pranced in wearing skin-tight black and gold leather hot pants, thong sandals, and this black lame shirt that was wide open with lots of jewelry. David, the old piano from Madison was sitting in the middle of all the construction, covered by a tarpaulin. Stucker walked right up to it, threw the tarpaulin aside, sat down, and started playing. And he was brilliant. Jim, he played Elton John's Take Me to the Pilot. It was as though the piano were levitating. I'd never seen or heard anything like it. <laughs> oh, and then Chud now said this guy walks in wearing basically a leotard cut down to the navel with his hairy chest showing, and he's entirely in sequins. I can't remember if his face was sequined, but the entire outfit, chest and everything, was in sequins. The gayest guy I've ever met, and one of the most hysterical. Stucker was just out there. <laughs> He was, he's incredible. And that's such a great, I mean, all those quotes are so perfect. And he, he is, I mean, and, and if you've seen the movie, you know exactly who this 
character is. And, you know, he he's in the film and he's he's really it's kind of he's almost so undeniable that they allow him to kind of break the rule of not being funny on purpose, basically. <laughs> yeah, wait, well, they could never write for him. That was the thing. You couldn't you could not write for Stucker. They just had to let Stucker be Stucker. Oh, he's uh, unbelievable and what and what a like yeah it just brings such energy and and yeah <laughs> well, yeah the joke of the, the great yeah what does the plane look like it it's big and white with a big or it's big and white with a big red stripe it looks like a giant tylenol <laughs> <laughs> who could come up with that but but him it's the funniest thing in the world or what do you make of this johnny oh i could make <laughs> add a brooch or <laughs> It's so it's it's one of those things you know you put all these pieces together and and eventually so they they are able to find and convince people uh, actually Michael Eisner and and uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, to allow them to basically try to start to make this movie and all these kind of things come together and it was still a bit of an uphill process even once they got Eisner and Katzenberg and Paramount uh, who were at Paramount at the time on board because they still weren't going to be allowed to direct it necessarily like it was I, I it's funny for them to kind of say like we didn't realize both how close and how far away we were from this movie ever happening even though they were we were in development and, and working on it all the time yeah uh yeah so so kind of what was the i mean eventually what what broke the dam on them just being allowed to to direct it and, and break through and make this movie as their their feature their debate debut feature i mean well it, it reached a point where they I think it was finally the Paramount thing. Once they got to Paramount, that was really what made the movie because not only did they agree to let them direct it, but they were able to work with someone at Paramount, a guy named uh, Tom Perry. And he helped them actually structure the movie and, and make it into a, a proper film as opposed to just a series of jokes. Basically they, they took the stuff from zero hour and then he helped them uh, like formulate the love story more and make that uh, develop that more between Ted and Lane. And that that's really that was the big the big turning point was getting to Paramount. Because before that, you know, there was that just that huge struggle. Well people just didn't want them to do it. And uh they wanted to have people like from Happy Days of Liver and Shirley be in, in the film or or Chevy Chase or Bill Murray. I mean just any number of names were thrown about at various points, some with more seriousness than others, including Barry Manilow. Uh, oh yes, that was yeah. After they got the Paramount, that's the whole thing. That whole story is great. <laughs> that um, was a great. Yes, that is a great story of. So yeah, how exactly they they kind of, you know, reverse psychology Barry Manilow out of the movie. Uh, or, or yeah, that was that was Tom Perry who did that. Tom Perry. He, yeah, where he got basically was like, uh, well, yeah, I'm sure uh, we, we it's great. We're thrilled that Barry's going to be a part of this. I mean, of course, you know, it's three guys are directing it. Uh, they've never directed a film in their lives. So it's either going to be a big hit or it's going to be a tremendous flop. You know, we'll see what happens where we, we've got, we got big expectations if it ever even gets made. And, <laughs> and then so suddenly good. Barry was out of the running. Yeah. <laughs> he pulled himself, pulled himself out. And, and it was, uh, I mean, it sounds like it was a real process to find. I mean, yeah. So obviously, you know, they had all these guys in mind for the sort of, the, you know the Robert Stack, the, the, the Peter Graves, those types of guys, and yeah. then but to find the the two leads was uh, almost, I mean, just a, a never ending process there for a while. Well, it sounds like Julie. Once they met Julie, there was no question that she was it. 
Um, so I think she was much, much easier to find as far as the female lead goes. Although uh, I did get to interview Shelly Long and she auditioned for it. Uh, and I, I did not get to interview Sigourney Weaver, but she auditioned as well. Uh, huh. She was my great white whale that I never got that I was, I wanted to talk to for the movie, but uh, I tried repeatedly and it was one of those cases where they said, I'm sorry, she's not available. Like, well, I, I mean, I'm pretty flexible. I can, I can be available whenever she is. Sorry, she's not available. Oh, oh, so, oh. so it's like that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but Shelly Long, she, she absolutely was glad in the long run that Julie Haggerty got it. But you could de definitely tell that even now she's like, I could have done it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, it's almost, it's so uh, inextricable from Julie Haggerty. And, and again, what everyone brings up is her, her kind of just very innocent, sweet line delivery. Uh, very much so, how real life too. It, it feels like you can see that that is just kind of her, who she is, but Shelly Long could have been good. I don't know. I'm gonna. <laughs> she's good too. Yeah, but as far as you could tell from how they describe uh, Julie, that that's how she is in real life. But I can tell you from firsthand experience that is absolutely who she is. She's <laughs> just so nice and so sweet. And she was someone who I was unable to get for the original oral history, so I didn't actually get to talk to her until this book. And David contacted her and told her what they were doing, and she was happy to get on the phone at that point. And but she just could not have been sweeter. She actually. Uh, texted me a photo of her dog in the leather bomber jacket that Robert Hayes had bought for the dog. It was, oh. I was like, this, this is one of those moments I'm never going to forget. <laughs> <laughs> well, she has such a great Stucker story in there about oh, the, the road trip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hate to spoil that for anybody. That's, that's so worth getting the book for. Absolutely. It's uh, so funny. It's so they're Yeah, they're 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 love. Yeah, basically things take uh, there's a there's a pit stop that uh, that uh, is unforgettable kind of thing. <laughs> um, you know, so it's funny. I, I will ask you something because the fact that I've not had a chance to read the book in its entirety since it actually came out. Do you do you happen to remember if there's a story from John Landis about working with Stucker later after Airplane? I don't think so. No, I don't remember that. It, uh, I. I can't remember all the specifics, but basically it involved him, uh, John Landis giving Stucker a job on trading places. And he, oh. he's not in it for long, but he's in it. And it was basically because he had found out at that point that uh, he had developed AIDS, uh, which he, later he appeared on Donahue. So that, that that's well documented and everything. But he wasn't able to get medical coverage, basically. So John Landis helped him get back uh his acting career at least for a brief period there and therefore was able to be insured oh gosh I, you know yeah it is such a shame and i know bill bill Hader had a quote about that specifically where he was like you know it's such a shame he was such a talent and he passes away so young that, that we could have had another 40 years of steven stucker and it just seems like you know it was such a, just a tragedy it really is yeah but what, it, it, who, it, it, who's in the trading places sorry if, it, yeah yeah it's on the train or right as they're getting ready to get on the train, maybe toward the end of the film. Oh, okay. Okay. All part. But if you, if you go looking for him, you immediately, you'll be like, Oh my God, Steven Stucker. I can't believe Stucker. it. Yeah. He's, it's very distinctly him. He's like wearing a suit and glasses, but it is. Okay. Stucker. 
that's you know well yeah there you go. that that's uh yeah, just a, just again a shame, just such a shame because he's so, he's so incredibly funny but it almost yeah. I, on some level it almost adds to the lore of airplane i uh, and and obviously not that it's uh uh worth it but you know it, it's like he's this otherworldly figure that just kind of pops into this one movie and you're like this like live action bugs bunny and then you yeah. never see him again it almost keeps it like pristine in a way that's that's kind of incredible yeah 100 percent. yeah uh just um just that's a talented talented person so so they they do uh well there was a great story i wanted to, to ask about so they it was the first time basically in like documented history that three people directed a movie <laughs> yes and so they had a lot of trouble with the DGA about that. And I was wondering if we could kind of get into the and talk about the lengths they were willing to go. Uh, they went so far as for Jim to go down and change his name to, uh, was it Abrams N. Zuckers, I think it's, yes. uh, it was. Yeah. yeah. So it was basically he was going to give all three of them credit uh, that way. And finally, I think that was like the straw that broke the camel's back for the studios. Like, fine, or the director's guild was fine, fine, fine. Just we give you all credit, whatever. <laughs> you, you will all be credited together. It yes, was, they were not happy about it, but they did it. Yeah, I, by their account, it went to like a a, a, a tie vote of a board of directors that was supposed to be uh, broken by the president, who is currently out of town. So then the vice president voted in their favor, and then boom, they were able to get it. And it's just it's like you know, I mean. Just kind of crazy. <laughs> they went that far, <laughs> but kind of in classic Zucker's as 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 fashion. I feel like they they had a creative solution. <laughs> oh, as far we've talked about casting Julie, but uh, as far as casting uh, Robert Hayes, the, the 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 big one who didn't get the role was of course uh, David Letterman, which was was my bucket list interview and the greatest thing I did in the context of writing this book was getting to talk to him for fifteen minutes. <laughs> oh, so yeah, I, <laughs> uh, which again, you know, uh, these oral histories are always great because even in small bits, you get a little bit of a person's uh, personality comes across very quickly, especially someone as distinct as a David Letterman. And yeah. uh, you can see all of his sort of uh, the, the self-loathing that's just barely bubbling up under the surface where he's like, yeah. <laughs> I was terrible. I told him I was terrible. I knew I was terrible, and what a relief it was that I wasn't cast because I knew I was terrible. <laughs> yeah, but it was so great when he when he said, you know, I I told them I was terrible uh, going in. I said I'm going to be terrible. Well, come on down anyway; it'll be fun. So I go down there, I do it, and as soon as I get finished, they come up to me and said, "Boy, you were right." <laughs> <laughs> but that- my favorite moment by far was just the fact that I I made him laugh at one point. <laughs> oh. That or, uh, the best. We were talking about the fact that he, uh, the story I think is in the book where he talks about how he was being sent on auditions back in that period of his career. And uh, he had to audition for uh, what I think ultimately became the sitcom Making It with David Naughton. Uh, but uh, he auditioned for it and they were like, we want you to stand in front of a mirror. Or you're getting ready to go out for a Saturday night. And uh, you're like kind of dancing in front of the mirror and, you know, you're brushing your hair and uh he's like you know what i've I've just remembered i've left my truck running and i walked out and i just never came back (laughs) (laughs) but i said uh i'm I'm not surprised uh to hear that you're uncomfortable because i i saw you on mary and he was on the short-lived variety show uh with mary tyler moore that had song and dance numbers 
And he said, oh, my God, you saw that? And I said, I, I did. In fact, until I saw it, I, I was unaware that it was possible to both dance and cringe at the same time. <laughs> burst out laughing. <laughs> That's uh, that... like, well, I'm, I can retire. I'm good. <laughs> Yes, that is a career highlight. I think uh, that's pretty awesome. Oh my gosh! Well, he's yeah. So and they had so so they yeah they they run through Letterman. They finally get Robert Hayes. They also do a thing that's so brilliant and it's it's so funny in the movie. It's that you know obviously is uh, in the original Zero Hour. They had a guy. You know, uh, they had a, a professional athlete. The crazy who, legs. Uh, I can't think of his last name right the second, but yeah, it was a basketball player also. Sim- yeah, I was going to say similarly named crazy, uh, you know, who's a basketball player. And yeah, I was going to say, some, I, I also can't remember his name except for it's crazy legs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because the funniest thing in the world to me, even it, again, it would feel like a joke that the Zuckers would do is on the poster for Zero Hour. It's, you know, starring blah, blah, crazy legs <laughs> is yeah. on the poster, <laughs> which is good. How do you take a, a, that movie seriously ever if, if once, once you see crazy legs on the bottom of the poster? <laughs> <laughs> and so they they reached out to uh they to several different guys right but it was it ends up being Kareem Abdul-Jabbar yeah Pete Rose I think is the most notable they tried for yes that was who they had written it for originally I believe yeah exactly and and he uh it was busy doing something at that time <laughs> well that's baseball that was the issue. Yeah. oh it was during yeah. the baseball season He's, that's right yeah he was busy he, running someone over at home but, plate maybe yeah, and he wasn't able to do it right? playoffs or something. So that's right. So so they get Kareem, who ends up being just like absolutely, you know, unforgettable in it, and is kind of perfect in his uh, his like uh, woodenness. Like he really is the exact right <laughs> speed for it. Absolutely. Uh, and so were were you able to? I'm trying to think. You you were able to speak with him for the about uh, well? the only one I did an interview with by email because oh, he's yeah he's constantly doing stuff. But uh, he, he was happy to participate. I just had to do it by email. Interesting. But, and, uh, uh, and, you know, and of course, very, he, and... he writes so much anyway. So his responses were as good as they would have been if I'd, if I'd done it on a phone anyway, I'm sure. Absolutely. It's one of those things. Yeah. Later, you realize that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is just an absolutely like uh, tremendous <laughs> writer, thinker. You know, he, he's incredible as, as like a TV. Uh, he, he's worked in TV rooms. He's been a, yeah. a TV a cultural critic. And you're like, yeah, what can't this guy do? You know? exactly. <laughs> uh, so the movie, I mean, obviously, you know, it, it, and eventually they, they film it, they get it all together, it comes out and, and um, you know, is, is pretty rapturously received. Uh, you know, how do, do you kind of, how do you feel about their sort of, uh, their relationship to the success? And then obviously then their, their careers from there can kind of continuing on. I mean, it's still, I think, the, the gem in their crown, and they consider it to be such. I mean, it, because, and it would have to be pretty much because there's no other project they've worked on over the years that they have had as much, they had as much time to get it exactly how they wanted it to their exact specifications. I mean, obviously, any film you do, they're going to complain about something. You look back on, you're like, oh, I wish we fixed that. And they still do that too. But that's definitely. They look back on that as the, the their pride and joy, and rightfully so. Yeah, it it, it just it it's so uh, it announces them exactly as who they are, you know, and then they can can kind of go forward and uh, kind of find their their way of doing their kind of comedy. But yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely um, 
you know, what would you call it? It's, it's their blank check. I mean, from there, they, they can kind of make what they, they want for a while and, 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 you know, change comedy. I mean, really in a, in a way, do something so different uh, in, in their kind of offshoot of comedy. It's, it's, it's so impressive. Yeah. I mean, it, it really did change, change comedy with, no one had done anything quite like that before. They hadn't done that thing with the, the serious actors playing it serious and getting laughs by doing that. It was that that's literally is why it took so long to get into production and why they had to fight so hard to get exactly the vision they wanted to do because nobody was getting it until they did it. And then it was like, Oh, now I get it. Right. And you know, and that was such an interesting thing too, because obviously it's, it's uh, still the late seventies when they're going around pitching this and, you know, they did this thing. It was very, it's so smart. And I, and I mean, I know I have friends who do this now is, you know, cutting together, it basically cutting together a sizzle reel, like what, yeah. you would cons- what would now be considered a sizzle reel at the time, that they had on a little projector that they would bring to these meetings to try to convince people, you know, this is what we want to do. See how this thing is funny. It's so serious. It's funny. And, and you know, it, it still didn't really get, finally it found the right home, but it took, it took them a long time. But that it, it, they kind of were always on the cutting edge of that kind of stuff of, of you know, again, making their own theater to put up their shows and, and doing these sizzle reels and having you know, Kentucky Fried Movie is the collection of their sketches that they did that they could move and get it. You know, they were just kind of always pushing, pushing, pushing. And, and uh, it, you know, they finally they finally got to make it, which is uh, they were all better for it. Well, the projector, that was actually one of the biggest things that I think helped them get signed to Paramount, because when they brought that projector, even now you talk to Eisner. And as I did talk to Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, and that was and Barry Diller, too, I think all of them. They very distinctly remember they brought in the projector and, and showed that the clip or the sizzle reel, as you say. Yeah, it's so it's so smart because I, you know, and I guess it's one of those things. Eventually, you, you know, it it kind of speaks to their entire uh, career and how they keep talking about. You know, we we did all these live shows and we just followed the laughs, right? It was about yeah. you know what was working, what wasn't working, and, and and I'm sure after you know 15 meetings where nobody knows what you're talking about, you go, okay, well we have to find a new way to try to communicate this. Yeah, and and they managed to do it, and you know, it, it, thankfully it leads to the movie getting made. And the following the laughs thing just reminds me of the way they ended up cutting the film that to get the the best possible impact was by literally uh, recording the laughter during screenings. And they they cut the film at one point based solely on one guy laughing, one guy who, <laughs> who had particularly boisterous laughter. And they went and literally cut the film based on what he thought was funny and and dropped things that you didn't they didn't hear him laugh at. I mean, that's, that, that's great. absolutely insane, but it worked. <laughs> you know I, that that's so funny. Yeah, because well, so they do talk about having a particularly disastrous test screening, right? For um... yeah, that's like I made to give too much of that away because that's at the very opening of the book, but it's it's. Yeah. It's amazing that they ever got past the, that that point in the the film because it literally that could have been their bombed them right out of Paramount. They could have just dumped that thing out on a a bad weekend and been done with it. And they, you know, thankfully they kind of they, they kind of get to keep pushing forward and exactly like get some more yeah. test screenings and and uh, cut it up right and you know because yeah they I mean again that's a thing too it's it's obviously. It, it, so many of the people who you talked to who were fans of it said, like, I almost, I had to go see it two or three times because you miss so many jokes because people are still laughing at jokes that just happened 10 seconds ago. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Which which is so a part of their their style. Uh, I, you know, I it, totally unrelated. I mean, I, I, not completely unrelated, but Leslie Nielsen, <laughs> uh, I just am remembering because obviously they, they had a long partnership that goes on for, for uh, you know, a number of years later. 
but right. there was just a bit that I saw that surfaced on uh, Twitter uh, that was from their like fugitive spoof that they did together that he did. He did. He did. I don't think they had anything to do with that, but I think. Yes, that, I think, okay, and that makes sense. Wrong, yeah. Wrongfully accused is what it was. Wrongfully, yeah. Oh, wrongfully accused. Yes, exactly. Which yeah. I had never seen. But there's <laughs> just that amazing bit where they're he's doing the train, uh, like he's the the chain the train crash from the fugitive. Yes. And he's running, and it stops following him, and then he looks back, and then the train peeks its head out from behind a tree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're so lucky. <laughs> It's just so funny, uh, you know. So what a great kind of beautiful thing that was uh, that that came out of this movie. That you know, Buzzley Nielsen could be that funny for that long and, and keep doing stuff all the way, you know, into the '90s. He could be doing uh, his version of Richard Kimball. It's like what a, again, what a gift they've all uh, kind of passed down here. Oh, hundred percent. I think his best stuff was in the early years, immediately through the Naked Gun things. I think because yeah. that's when. You could tell he was doing his best to still play it one hundred percent serious. Like you, you could tell even as the Naked Guns progress that he's either in his eyes or as an expression. Even uh, you could tell he's in on the joke, and that's when it starts to work a little bit less. But yeah, exactly. When it's he when, when he was actually able to remain stoic, that's when it, he would absolutely kick ass. Yeah, and, and I think even they say in the making of it, right, it was like he was one of the people who was like, I'm ready to do some comedy. And like, no, 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 as serious as possible. Just get straight, keep it straight. You know, I, you know, he was ready to show this other gear, and they're like, no, 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 that's not how it has to be straight. Save that yeah. gear. <laughs> exactly, yeah, save that, exactly, exactly. Because actually, I, uh, I, I may be misremembering this, but I think he, like, underlined the fact that he had been in an episode of MASH. They were like, well, that's fine, but don't, that doesn't help us. Yeah, I think they almost say, like, we're going to pretend like you didn't say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so funny. Yeah, I, it, it is always funny. Uh, I don't know if, if during the pandemic you also went back and watched a bunch of old Columbos, but he's in about <laughs> two of them. <laughs> like everyone else I know. Uh, <laughs> he's in two of those early ones, and you're just, and it's pre-airplane, and you're like, oh, my God, it's listening. <laughs> and he's not. Yeah, I mean, not, it, I'm a huge uh, fan of Forbidden Planet. Even that's weird now. <laughs> <laughs> right it's just kind of crazy but he's he's in there and you're in, in playing something straight that is meant to be played straight it's supposed you know it's like it's you're like oh wow yeah he's like kind of the romantic lead in this how interesting <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah uh so i guess the, the last thing I, i'm kind of interested because uh mm-hmm. i'll i'll we'll kind of leave with this maybe is i think what's so interesting about the book and and zaz kind of talk about how they feel like maybe they wouldn't be allowed to make a version of it today but i think what's so interesting about the book is that they were barely allowed to make it then. <laughs> That's very true. Uh, it, it's funny. Some of the stuff that you look back at and you think, oh, I don't know if they could make that today. Like the, people always like to hold up the jive scene. Uh, right. But I don't having, you know, been a part of making this book. I That seems to be the least offensive when you know the story behind it, which is that right. the guys who are doing the speaking of the jive, they wrote their own dialogue uh al white pointedly went and got all these reference books of like jazz dialect and slang and all this stuff and he wanted to make sure that every single thing that he said and as jive was something that had meaning behind it it wasn't just random jive sounding stuff it actually had meaning every every aspect of it yes exactly and right that was so interesting as well they had to see basically they both 
yeah, both guys involved, both went out and did their own research and then really were kind of empowered to, uh, yeah, exactly, kind of write that scene almost exactly the way they wanted to using all that, the, the kind of the old slang and everything. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't find it to be a particularly a movie that's, you know, steeped in kind of the kind of humor that you again would, would make you go, ooh, to today. It really isn't. I think it kind of avoids most of that. And, and, and you know, it kind of speaks to their their ability as comedy writers. I agree. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they knew what they were doing from the start and uh, they, they obviously had help along the way, Tom Perry, most notably. And I think to some extent, I think you can attribute John Landis taught them some things about the process of making the film and uh, knowing what not to do. Uh, but uh, the ultimately it was their, their mindset, their genius that made it what it was. Absolutely. And, and again, I, I can't stress enough, like how funny they all still are today together in the book. I mean, you know, it's worth the book alone is just, they have so many funny jokes, just they, they have such chemistry, as, it, it, even on the page, it reads so funny, especially uh, <laughs> there's especially an OJ Simpson passage, which I think is <laughs> I was literally just gonna say, I, I don't know how long David had been sitting on that joke. But uh, it's, it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> He's pretty good. Uh, you know, and, and even at the very end of the book, he gets into, uh, David gets into his work with uh, the Tree People, which is an organization out here in Los Angeles. And yeah. they do uh, a live read every year of Airplane, which I was lucky enough to get to go to maybe in, in either 2018 or 2019. Right. And uh, and it was a, a pleasure. And him and Robert Hayes were there and, and get to do oh, some nice. stick together, which is a blast. And uh, And the great Robert Forster played uh, a couple of roles in it. I think he was. I think he was doing uh, Peter Graves. He was the pilot, nice. who was incredible, and he was so funny and so sweet as well. And and uh, you know, it just it holds. It's so funny. It's a movie that's so funny that again, you could be in the middle. We're in like you're in the middle of like the Mulholland Forest up here. <laughs> there's, <laughs> and, <laughs> there's hardly any amplification, and you know, kids, everyone from of every age is there watching it, and you just love it, even as a live read. The joke still just works so well. Yeah, I mean it's uh, uh, it's funny. Uh, it's still newsworthy uh, when uh, the uh, HBO series about the Lakers. Uh, right. That, that I think they made managed to put that into the book actually when they did that scene in the uh, with Kareem and it was just completely misrepresented. Uh, well, it was out and out fabrication, suggesting that uh, he had been. Uh, mean and cursed at uh, Ross Harris, uh, and uh, the, the funny thing about that for me was that when that happened, when that scene happened, I get a call from David saying, uh, "Do you have Ross's number?" Because I, <laughs> I, I, I'm doing a piece for the LA Times, and I really would like to talk to him about this. And I was like, "Yeah, let me just. Uh, I'm sure he would have no problem me giving it to you." So I pass it along, and then I sent him Ross a message just like you're gonna be hearing from David <laughs> very soon actually <laughs> I said but just out of curiosity there's no truth to any of that I presume because I can't imagine having at, at this point we'd already in, done the interview for the book right and right. I, I feel like that would have come up and he was like no that's complete bullshit <laughs> none of that ever happened which is and it's so funny because also uh they, yeah like yeah David is so clear in the book he's like yeah I reach out to Ross and that never happened Kareem was nothing but a sweetheart and like but but obviously that's uh that Showtime Lakers show was produced by it, McKay, who's a huge fan, and it gets them to come in and do their cameo as the directors. 
just for what you know one second basically and but obviously yeah. they weren't there when they shot all the dialogue and so i think they were surprised as anybody when that happened it sounds like i would say horrified even david certainly yeah. was yeah yeah because it's you know yeah it just it's it's too it would be a shame even for uh to to kind of impugn the the legacy is so funny it's just so so funny uh and and it seems like everyone had such a communal great experience on that set all the the, the entire time yeah i mean i think the only person uh, at some point i think julie haggerty uh was a little iffy about the whole scene with Otto, the autopilot oh. and blowing that thing up. But even, even that was, uh, I think made people made mountains out of molehills with that because she, she said that it was just, I don't know what they, uh, I know what they thought they were doing with that, but she was like, I never felt that way about it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. She, yeah. I yeah. think even it, it's even, it seems like something almost in retrospect that like, cause it sounds like in the moment she almost wasn't quite a hundred percent, sure what the joke was or you know she like never saw the yeah. The, the, the yeah so it's it's just uh yeah it's it's such a it's one of the unimpeachable unassailable kind of great things that ever got made <laughs> that's ever gotten made yeah <laughs> well uh you know will thank you so much for your time this has been an absolute pleasure my pleasure uh, doing it. and uh you know uh, obviously we're looking forward to whatever everything else you have coming out soon and uh in any of your work on the internet uh it'll be <laughs> your future articles and things coming out Absolutely. Uh, there, there are more long recommend more long form interviews are in the offing i promise you yes please because I, I was going to say as as someone who's read a, a majority of the those random roles uh i, I need I, yeah they're they're some of the greatest it's some of the best sort of Hollywood, you know, movie, you know, movie TV stuff. I mean, I cannot recommend the Philip Baker Hall one enough. Uh, he's incredible. And it's such a great interview. And it makes you love that guy so much. It's, it's, it's absolutely tremendous. I will say that uh, just a, a side hype for myself that I've got a Substack. It's uh it's will Harris.substack.com. And one of the pieces on there is about a pilot that uh, Philip Baker Hall did. Uh, where he played a ringmaster uh, for a, a sitcom with a drunken clown. Uh, and he was so kind to get back on the phone with me and, and do a ridiculously long interview about something nobody's ever actually seen. But I, I, I absolutely recommend that you seek that out. It, it's, uh, it, someone's actually put it on YouTube now. But if you read the article first and then watch the, the pilot on YouTube... It's such an amazing story, just by virtue of why it ultimately never made it to air. There, there are so many great moments in there that I, I feel like I personally quote all the time now because I've read that piece. <laughs> and I, there's one line in particular that I think you can imagine. <laughs> oh yes, uh, God, that I, I'm so glad that I was able to do that story. <laughs> yeah, and 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 just again, it'll make you fall in love with Philip Baker Hall because I mean, there's moments in that or it, it, where he's explaining how. You know, it, you know, he made sure that, it, that they had to fight to get the points for for people so that actors could, you know, he's just a union man who who needed, you know, wanted to really help his fellow actors. And you just, yeah, he's it's 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 a great, great, vital piece of writing about uh, the entertainment industry and, and that guy in particular. Yeah. So, again, thank you so much, Will. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. And, uh, if you're listening, you should come out to uh, Skylight Books. Uh, Surely You Can't Be Serious is going to be available for purchase in the Arts Annex, which is uh, at 1814 Skylight, which is just two doors down from our main location. And uh, we would love for you to grab it. Dads and uncles <laughs> will love this book. So 100%. please 
come and get it at Skyline Books and, and we would love to uh, to wrap it up for you as well. So thanks again, Will. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you. And we will, uh, we will talk to you. We will be back soon with another episode. Thanks again. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Skylight Books podcast series. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to check out the book featured in this episode or others, please visit skylightbooks.com. If you're in the Los Angeles area, stop by for one of our live in-person author events. You can find a calendar on our website. If you like this podcast, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Our music is by Duck the Piano Wire. Till next time. <laughs>